So I want to start us off with communion this morning. It's Easter Sunday, and we cannot have Easter Sunday without communion. So if those who are handing that out could do so, that would be great. So I kind of wanted to just finish off my message from last week. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to get the, get the message, not because I want you to hear me speak, but because I think it, it had some keys in there that are important for us as Christians, and even important for us if we're not Christians, and even more so important for us if we struggle with our Christianity. So I'm just going to briefly recap for anyone who wasn't here. The first thing we found is that God's promise of I will be your dark side was in the soldier's spit. And briefly, I talked to you about how within each one of us, there lives a beast. And we keep this beast really well hidden, but he pokes his head out at the oddest of times. When someone cuts you off in the traffic, when someone steals your parking space, when someone at work who you don't like gets a promotion, and all of a sudden, that beast rears its ugly head a little bit. But the promises that, that Jesus and God made was that he would bear our dark side. Because you see, Jesus is the beauty of heaven. And he loves the beast. He loved the beast so much that he came and he became the beast so that you and I could become the beauty. He changed places with us. And that was his promise on the crown of thorns was, I have loved you enough to become one of you. Throughout scripture, thorn symbolizes not sin itself, but the consequence of sin. And we have lived, this earth bears up under the consequence of man's sin and has done for thousands and thousands of years and will continue to do so until Christ comes back. And he took our place because he did not want us to bear the consequence of our sin. Then God's promise in the nails is that he will forgive you. You see... When he hung on the cross, between the wood and his hand, there hangs a list. And on that list is all your failings and all your sin and all your bad temper and all your negative attitude and all your frustration and all your bad decisions that you've made. All of those hang there. And Jesus put them there on purpose so that his blood would cover it and so that it would no longer be there. Your mistakes would no longer be seen and all that is seen is the blood of Jesus. You see, he put it there so that you would be able to have heaven open wide for you. The next promise he had was a promise through the sign and God's promise in the sign was that I will speak to you in your language. And we talked about how there are signs. God has many signs because we're kind of stupid and we miss them. And he talked about the rainbow after the flood signifies God's covenant. How circumcision identifies God's chosen people. That the stars portray the size of God's family. And that communion is a sign of his death. Baptism, which we, if you came out last week, it was awesome to see those baptisms. And that we had that as a sign of spiritual rebirth. Each of these things symbolizes a greatest truth that we look to. The first one is that there is no person that God will not use. And we realize that the first evangelist was actually Pilate. When he stuck the sign up there, he was the first one to proclaim that Jesus is the king. And there is no language that God will not speak. Because if you talk to people in here and you talk to people around the world who are Christians, you will find that they all found Jesus in a very different way to how you found Jesus. And he speaks to us each in an individual way. 
The next promise we looked at was that God's promise through the two crosses is that he will let you choose. This one I, I, I struggle with. It would be easier if he was a dictator because then I don't have to make any of the choices. I just have to follow. But he didn't. He says, I love you enough to let you choose. And we talked about how he had the two thieves up there with Jesus and Jesus in the middle. And we talked about how the first thief was mocking him and ridiculing him. And then the second thief actually was repentant and asked to be remembered. And we thought about how, why didn't Jesus say something else to the, to the lost thief, to the thief who was mocking him? Why did he just let him say all that stuff? Why did he not say, hey, I am actually who I said I am? Do you know why? Because he loves us enough to let us choose. He loved that man enough to let him mock him and to let that be his choice. And he loved the other thief enough to, when he asked for forgiveness, to forgive him. You see, he will let you choose because he loves you enough to do that. And he will let you stand by your decision. The last thing we looked at was God's promise in the garment, which was, I will give you my robe. Because we realized that it wasn't enough for him to prepare a feast for us. It wasn't enough for him to prepare us a seat at the table. And it wasn't enough for him to cover the cost of our entry into heaven. But he did something even more. He let us wear his garment. He let us wear his clothes. And he took ours. Just so that we could be properly dressed. So we could be properly fully received. And he did that for us. He promised he would not abandon us. That was the promise of the, the road that he walked. You see, we talked about pride and shame are actually twins. They're actually sisters. They have the same parentage. The result of pride and shame, both of them seek to keep you from God. Pride does it by saying you're too good. You're too good for him. You don't need to be saved. You're actually a good person. That's what pride says. Shame says the opposite. Shame says I'm so bad. I'm so bad. And it keeps you from finding him. Pride will drive you away and shame will keep you away. And if pride comes before a fall, then when we fall, shame is what keeps us down. But we have to get up. Because Jesus said, I will wait. I will be here. And he will wait forever for you if that's what it takes. So I just wanted to, to remind you of that before we come to communion this morning. It's quite interesting, like the video, the footage that we see, it, it, there's something there that I think no matter how hard we try, we're not going to actually understand. It would have been busy. It, it would have been noisy. You know, the swinging of the hammers to nail those three men up there. You would have had their victims or the thieves would have been there. They would have been hurling insults at them, hurling rotten food at them. It wouldn't have been a quiet, nice time. Sometimes that's how you see it on the movies, right? They portray it as a somber moment. There would have been crowds of people. This was a spectacle. But eventually, they would have got bored and they would have gone. And the hill would have been quiet. Not still, just quiet. And when it was quiet, you'd be able to hear the labored breathing. You'd be able to, to, to hear soft murmurs. I'm sure Mary stayed. No way I would have left if it was my son. John was there. In fact, one of the last things Jesus did was he took care of his mother and he says to John, this is now your mom. And I want to talk a bit about John. The thing is, at that moment, 
we weren't there. We, we don't actually know. So we see videos and we, we imagine what happened and we read about what happened. Do we think it was right? Because we love Jesus, we say no. But to their culture, it was acceptable. We think it was brutal, gruesome. But to their culture, that was the norm. We see the video footage and we know it's going to play, so we hide our children away because we think they shouldn't see that. But children would have been there and they would have seen because that was the norm. We're not asked to input into how that was. We've never been asked. God doesn't need our help in, in bringing Jesus to the cross. We've never been asked to contribute. What he does ask from us is to respond. We have to respond. Because in order for the cross of Christ to become the cross of your life, we need to respond to that. And to respond to that, we do that by bringing something with us to the hill, to the cross. We saw what Jesus brought. He's brought his scarred hands. He's brought his, his tears and the, the pain of all of that. We see all that. He wore our garment as his own, and that's what he took to the cross. So what do we need to bring? What do we need to bring to the cross? We didn't have to carry the sign. We don't have to carry the nails. We aren't asked to wear the spit of the soldiers. But we are asked to walk the path with him and to leave something at the cross. We don't have to, and you don't, because God does not ever make us do anything. If you choose not to walk to the cross and leave something there, you don't have to. There have been many people who have examined the cross. There have been many people who have looked at what happened, and they are knowledgeable, and they carry with them the understanding intellectually of what happened. There have been great minds that have researched it and looked at it. Problem is, if they don't leave something there, it doesn't become a part of them. It does, they don't share in that experience with him. Few people leave something at the cross. You need to leave something or else you're not going to embrace it. What we need to leave, we need to start with what, what I call our bad moments. When you come to the cross, you need to bring your bad moments with you. You know those bad habits that we have? We need to leave them at the cross. Your selfish moods, the white lies you tell, the screwing up of your face, you need to give them to God. All of our preconceived ideas, our bigotries and our binges and our every flop and every failure, we bring those and we leave them at the cross. And he wants us to do that. He wants every single one of them. The reason being is that he knows you can't live with them. You can't carry them. You see, we can't live this life without falling. It's impossible for us. And when we fall, we get hurt. And we can't carry that because you know what happens if you're hurt and you're still trying to walk? You begin to limp. You begin to do more damage. And if you hold on to it for too long, what happens is it becomes a bitterness within you and it begins to poison you from the inside out. So you have to take all of that bad stuff and you have to leave it at the cross so that you can walk freely without it. Because that's what he came to do, to set you free. In Romans 11:27, it says, This is my commitment to my people, removal of their sins. God does more than forgive your mistakes. He removes them. He removes them so they're not there. And all you have to do is just bring them to him at the cross. 
He doesn't, even want, doesn't only want the mistakes that we have made, he wants the ones that we're making. And you may be making mistakes now. Maybe you're drinking too much. Maybe you're cheating at work. Maybe you're cheating in your marriage. Maybe you're being, mismanaging your money. Maybe you're mismanaging your life. Maybe your so-called fun hobby has actually become something that controls you. You shouldn't be pretending that there is nothing wrong in your life. What you need to do is you need to bring it all and put it before the cross. When you stumble, you should go to God. Your first step when you get up should be in the direction of the cross. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins to God, he can always be trusted to forgive us and to take our sins away. So what you need to leave at the cross is your bad moments and your mad moments. You need to leave them there. I heard a story once about a man who was bitten by a dog. And when he learned that the dog had rabies, he sat down at the doctor and started making a list. And the doctor says to him, you don't need to make a will, we, we cure rabies. And he goes, no, no, you don't understand. I'm making a list of all the people I want to bite. And we can't we make that list ourselves? There are people who have hurt us, and it may not have been intentional, but we got hurt anyway, and we're still angry, and we're still hurt. And haven't you learned in this life that friends aren't always friends, and neighbours aren't always neighbours, and just because someone gets called dad doesn't actually mean they act like a father, and just because someone said yes when you got married doesn't mean they're still saying yes in your marriage today. Some people at work never work, and some bosses are extra bossy. And we take all of that, and we need to leave it at the cross. These are the things that make us mad and make us angry. And sometimes we need to leave at the cross where we've hurt people. We don't like to talk about that because we only ever like to talk about how I got hurt and how I was upset and how this, this really wrecked my life, but we don't really talk about the times when we do it to others. But there are times, and every single one of us has had that opportunity, and you're kidding yourself if you think you've lived through this life without inflicting pain of some kind on someone else. But we need to take that. We need to take the guilt of that, and we need to go, and we need to place it before the cross. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love does not keep a record of wrongs. So we need to take our list of our bad moments and our mad moments, and we need to leave them before the cross. And it's not an easy thing to do. Because you know what, when we have been hurt, we want to say, but God, look what they did to me. Look how they hurt me. Look how this has wrecked my life. And you know what he says? Look at what I did for you. Because I have forgiven you, you have to forgive. And to be honest, what he has forgiven us from is far greater than what we've done to other people or what had done to us. You and I are commanded. Colossians 3.13 says, If someone does wrong to you, forgive that person because the Lord forgave you. We are commanded. We are not urged. It is not a suggestion, but we are commanded to forgive. We are to keep no list of wrongs. Do you really want to keep one, though? I mean, seriously? Do you really want to catalogue all the list of things that have been done wrong to you? All the things that you've done wrong? That's not healthy for anyone. That just wrecks everybody. There's no forgiveness in that. And it just leaves you feeling bitter and poisoned and twisted. We also need to give God our anxious moments. I've been experiencing some anxious moments lately. We've been teaching Madison to drive. And to be honest, she's pretty good. I'm just a wreck about it. And it's not because I don't trust her. It's because I don't trust everybody else. So I'm really fearful in a couple of weeks. She sits here restricted and then she's going to go by herself. 
I don't know, I, honestly, this, this worries me. This, this panics me. Because I've seen the way people drive. I've seen the way I drive. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, I freely admit I am a really distracted driver. I spend too much time singing, not enough time paying attention to what's going on around me. Like, and I know there are other people like that on the road. And my child, my heart is going to sit in this car by herself and drive. We need to give God our anxious moments. Maybe you're anxious about a doctor's report. Maybe you're anxious about the state of your finances. Maybe you're anxious about things in the past or something coming up. We need to give those all to him. You need to do yourself a favor. Take all your bad moments and all your mad moments and all your anxious moments, and we're going to leave them at the cross. Thing is, if you take all of those moments and you leave those at the cross, do you know what you walk away with? All of the good moments. All of the good things that happen. All of the things that should be treasured and should be remembered. Romans 8.32 says, God did not keep back his own son, but gave him for us. If God did this, won't he freely give us everything else? So this morning, you've got communion. And what I want you to do is I actually want you to just to close your eyes. And I want you to think of those bad moments. And I want you to think of those mad moments. And I want you to think of those things that make you anxious and make you worried. And we're going to leave them at the cross. And when we're done, we're going to get up because it's all been left. And we're going to be victorious because we are now free. And we are now walking as a child of the Most High God. We are now walking in clean garments. So run your thumb over the tip of the spear. Balance, balance a spike in the palm of your hand. See the wooden sign written in your own language. And as you do that, touch the dirt below your feet, wet with his blood. The blood that he bled for you, that covers your sin. The spear that he took for you. The nails that he felt for you. The sign that he left for you. Just leave all of those things behind. And as you take the bread, know that Christ has become a part of you and you've become a part of him. And as you take the wine, or grape juice in this case, know that your sins are covered. And then remember to thank him because you are rising victorious set free. Feel free to take in your own time. They're just going to come through and gather up your cups. There's one last promise I want to talk to you about this morning. 
And it's a promise I think that we need. We need to remember this promise. And it's the promise that's found in the burial clothes. And that promise is that I can turn your tragedy into a triumph. This, of course, is happening. The, the burial clothes thing happens after the cross, happens after Jesus has come, been brought down from the cross. And it's not something we like to talk about, grave clothes. It's not something we ever like, like to think. You can't go to a shop and go, I want to buy a set of clothes that I'm going to be buried in. I remember the one and only time I've ever had that conversation was my cousin had passed away a few years ago and his mom rang me, my aunt rang me, because they were burying him. He's a soccer player, played for jury. And he, they buried him in his favorite soccer shirt and all this sort of stuff. But she said to me, we wanted to leave something in the pocket of, of what he'd been dressed in. And he goes, but I think it belongs to you. Is that going to be okay? And I'm thinking, this is, of course it's okay. Like I can say, no, it's not. Her son's just died. You know, you can't actually say that. So I remember it being a really odd conversation because then she went on to describe in detail the different clothing that they had buried him in. It was a very surreal conversation. I'm thinking to myself, I'm actually uncomfortable with this because burial clothing and grave clothes actually represent death. You don't ever bury someone in something if they're not going to, if they're done, if they're dead, you don't you don't dress someone in you know who's alive in the burial clothes, do you? And it's quite an interesting phenomenon. It's the one and only time I've ever had the conversation. I hope I never have a conversation like that again. To be totally honest, because I was left very uncomfortable. But I wanted to talk about the Apostle John. I want to talk about how he came to see burial garments as something of a, a symbol of triumph. You see, he didn't always see them that way. They are, a tangible, they are a tangible reminder of the death of his friend Jesus. You see, on that very first Easter Sunday, God took the clothing of death and he made it a symbol of life. We all face tragedy. We have all faced symbols of tragedy. You may have had um, a death notification. Maybe you have an ID bracelet from the hospital. Maybe you have a court summons, and these are all forms of a death that we've faced, and these are tangible symbols that we can see. Thing is, John believes that God can take these symbols and turn them into something good and make them a symbol for life. In Romans 8, 28, it says, We are confident that God is able to orchestrate everything to work towards something good and beautiful when we love him and accept his invitation to live according to his plan. And everything God works for the good of those who love him. But does everything include tumors and tests? Does everything include pain and suffering? The Apostle John would tell you, yes, it does. In John 19, verse 38, it says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices as a custom of the Jews is to bury. You have two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who were reluctant to actually follow Jesus openly. They did not follow him. They did not acknowledge him openly as Lord. They did not acknowledge him as Christ. But in his death, after Jesus had died, they actually decided enough. 
And they stood up. And they came to serve Jesus. And they came and they got his body. And they ascended that hill, bearing the burial cloths, carrying those, that clothing. See, Pilate had given them permission to have his body. Joseph of Arimathea had actually provided an empty tomb. Nicodemus had brought spices and linens. And coincidentally, the amount of spices and linens that he brought was the amount that was used to bury kings, not to bury a common person. This, the linens, the burial linens are a symbol of Friday's tragedy. As long as there is no burial clothes, as long as there's no burial linens, we still have hope that there could be something happening. For John, at that moment, the grave clothes symbolizes a tragedy for him. There's no greater tragedy for him than for, than for Jesus to be dead. You see, you have to understand that Jesus, uh, John had turned his back on his entire career to follow Jesus. He had spent three and a bit years walking after Jesus. He had stopped doing what he was supposed to be doing. He had left behind that whole entire life. He had left behind his family and he followed Jesus. And all of a sudden, the one thing that he had counted on being there forever, the one thing that he had changed his entire life for, was gone. He walked with Jesus for those three and a bit years. And on the Sunday before, on Palm Sunday, what we know is Palm Sunday, they had walked through the township and people were singing Hosanna and glory and it was all wonderful. But by Friday, they had called for his death and Jesus was crucified. And at that point, John doesn't know what we know. John didn't know about the resurrection because if you read later on, he actually says, he actually lists there, I did not know that Jesus would be resurrected. So here he is on that Friday experiencing the death of his friend, thinking there is no hope, not understanding about the resurrection. We know, so we know that this is only part of the story, but for him it was done. He didn't know that Friday's tragedy was going to become Sunday's triumph. And that's why Saturday is actually really important. We don't know anything that happened on that day. We don't know what happened on the Saturday. There is actually no recordings. There's no recollection. There's no knowledge to be shared about the Saturday. All we know is that when Sunday came, John was still there. Jesus was dead. John's friend, Jesus, was dead. His entire future was dead. But John hadn't left. He was still there. We know he wasn't expecting the resurrection, but he was still there. Honestly, you would have thought he would have left. Because if you think about it, the crowd have just been appeased by one crucifixion. Wouldn't it have made sense for the religious leaders to round up the rest of them, to round up the rest of the disciples and to crucify them? To be honest, if I was in charge, that's what I would have done. Make sure that no other word got out. Make sure that this, the stuff that Jesus was saying wasn't going to be spread by somebody else. If it was my job to, to, to shut this down, I so would have gathered up the rest of those disciples and crucified them again. But John didn't run. He didn't get out of town. Maybe it's because he was taking care of Mary. Maybe because he thought, Jesus is the last thing he asked me to do, I better take care of his mom. Maybe he didn't know where else to go. He'd kind of cut ties with his family. Maybe he didn't feel he could go back. Maybe he didn't have the money or the energy to leave. Or maybe, maybe he lingered because he loved Jesus. Maybe he stayed because he loved Jesus. 
You see, to everybody, Jesus was a miracle worker, and he was a master teacher. And you know what? To John, he was these things also, but he was also his friend. And you don't abandon your friends, even if they happen to be dead. You see, John was always close to Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, you will see that John was close to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. John was close to him in the upper room. John was close to him in, um, at the foot of the cross. John never left Jesus. Did John understand everything that Jesus said? No. Did John understand why Jesus didn't run but face the crucifixion? No. Did he agree with that? I doubt it. But did he leave Jesus? No. What about you? What do you do when you're in John's position? When it's Saturday in your life? When Friday has been a tragedy and you don't know when Sunday's coming or if Sunday's even going to come for the resurrection and you're sitting in Saturday? What do you do? Do you leave? Do you stop going to church? Do you think you're going to punish God by not being in church? It's rather foolish. God's everywhere. He doesn't need you to be in church for him to be with you. Do you decide that, that God doesn't know what he's doing, so we're just going to cut off all of our Christian friends? Do you stop talking to him? Or do you linger? Do you remember that you love him? John chose to linger, and because he lingered on Saturday... He was around on Sunday to see the miracle. John 20 verses, verse 2 to 8 says, Then she, being Mary Magdalene, then she came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. But Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place all by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. You see, they saw the rags of death, but it became a symbol of life. God often uses the sad, miserable things of this world to show his glory. He took empty jugs of wine at a wedding, and they became a symbol of power. He took the widow's might, and it became a symbol of generosity that we still speak of today. A tool of death, the cross, is actually our symbol of life and hope. So when they came in and they saw the grave clothes lying there without Jesus, folded up neatly, still resting there, it became a symbol of life. And I believe that God can do something similar in your life. God can take what you're going through today and it become, can become the greatest symbol of his love and it can become the greatest symbol of his faithfulness and his greatness. It can be turned into a symbol of triumph. All you need to do, and it's so simple, is do what John did. Don't run. Don't leave. Stay. Linger. Look for his presence. Look for his word. Look for support. 
you need to learn to praise him in the hallway. Because when one door closes and another one has not opened, begin to praise him in the hallway. You need to learn to begin to praise him on Saturday. Yes, Friday is a tragedy, and yes, it was awful, but Sunday's coming. You've got to praise him where you are. And I know it can be hard, and I, I know it can be such a struggle for us. And we think, we read the stories in the Bible, and we see about how, how God did amazing things for Abraham, and yet, you know, Sarah got a baby out of it. That's awesome. And then we hear, and we, do, and we hear about other people who get it, and it's the whole way through, and you see God's hand moving, and we think to ourselves, well, those are just stories. And sometimes I think we take the Bible and we make it a fairy tale, and then we think it doesn't, doesn't apply, doesn't apply to us. Or we hear about those great men and women of the faith who are dead and gone now, and we think to ourselves, well, that was them, and God doesn't do that now. God doesn't do that today. So I want to share with you a really brief testimony. I'm not going to share the testimony in its entirety because it will take long, but there's a snippet I want to share from my own life. And I have shared this at, the, at our daughter's meeting last year. So, but like I said, I'm only going to share a snippet of it. Because I know that when God says that Sunday's coming, that's what he means. And I know that when God says he can heal, that's what he means. And I know when God says that you're victorious, that's what he means. And the reason why I know this is because he did this for me. You see, quite a few years ago now, I hate to... Oh, I don't know. I'm not going to calculate it because they'll just, yeah. Anyway, quite a few years ago, Craig and I were in Wellington and we were going to plant a church. In fact, we'd been in Wellington for a while. Craig had been down there a lot longer than I had and we were planting a church. And we were approximately four weeks from planting this church. And I ended up, I came back up to Auckland because it was my dad's 50th birthday and I just came up. Craig stayed behind. And so while I'm up here, I get really sick. I was suffering with Crohn's disease. Um, which is a really awful, nasty disease. It's ulceration of your bowel and your intestines and your esophagus. And then I did something rare and it spread up into my stomach. So I've had multiple surgeries. I've had multiple delays of healing and blah, blah, blah. But that's not what this testimony is about. So while I'm up here, I get really sick. And I was so sick with the Crohn's that they, I ended up in Auckland Hospital. And while I'm in Auckland Hospital, they did a CT scan. And in the middle of the CT scan, all of a sudden, the machine stops, the technician comes running in, and she's really upset. And she says, there's fluid in your womb. And I was like, that's nice, what does that mean? I'm not a doctor, I have no clue what she's talking about. She goes, that means you're pregnant. That means that this baby has just been uh, hit with all this radiation. That means this baby, if, if it even survives, is going to be so hugely deformed. So I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, oh, great. First thing I do is I grab out my mobile phone, and I ring Craig. I said, you need to come, because he's still in Wellington. I'm in Auckland, he's in Wellington. So I don't know what he does, but he comes. I don't know how he got here. I don't know if he drove. I don't know if he flew, but he got here. While I'm sitting there, there's all these phone calls going on. All of a sudden, I get pushed into this corner, and they said, the orderly's coming. They're coming to get you. I was like, okay. So I'm not realizing, kind of reeling a bit. And as they came in, all the, the, the top administration from the hospital are in there. And they're having this conversation. And I don't think they realized I was still in the room. Because the next thing I hear is, did you follow procedure? Did you follow protocol? Did you do a pregnancy test? And the technician goes, no, I didn't. She goes, then they have the right to sue us. If this goes south on us, we're in trouble. And then one of the guys turns around and spots me in the corner and goes, who's that? And he goes, oh, that's her. Next thing I know, I'm being pushed out and wheeled up to the hospital room. 
Now I realised, and I'm reeling still from what they'd said, and I was still sick and I was in a lot of pain from the Crohn's, and I'm thinking to myself, something really isn't right here. Then I get a visit from the top person in New Zealand at that time for dealing with, um, with pregnancies and miscarriages and things like that. Previously I'd had a couple of miscarriages. I'd had one that was at 14 weeks uh, a couple of months beforehand. So I was kind of like a bit reeling and they came to me and they said, because of what's happened, you're going to have to abort. And I said, I can't do that. You don't understand. There's so much radiation here that this child, even if the pregnancy survives, is just going to be a mess. It's going to have so many problems, going to, you know, missing limbs, you know, retardation, all this sort of stuff. And I'm sitting there thinking, I can't because I'm a Christian. I don't get to opt out because I don't like what's happening. As a Christian, I don't get to say to God, no, I don't want to do this anymore and quit. So, and all this is happening before Craig even arrived, so I'm by myself. Uh, yeah, I, I can't do this. So in the end, long story short, they ended up by, I was going in and out of hospital a lot, and they decided that because I refused to have the abortion, and because when, by the time Craig got up there, he agreed with me that, no, we can't do that, that I had to be scanned every two weeks while they wait for me, my body. They said, well, your body's probably going to abort it anyway. I was like, okay, that's fine. If that's what happens, that will hap that's what happens. I can't actually make this decision. So every two weeks, I get scanned. And we watch this child grow, literally grow. It was an amazing experience to see that go from, you know, looking like a tadpole <laughs> to, to actually forming limbs and, and watching these little arms grow. And then, you know, over a couple of weeks, you watch the fingers develop. But each time we were in there, there was the, let's just see how things are going. And the whole time, my body's threatening to miscarry. Like, so I'm dealing with all of that. And I, it was a time in my life where I actually felt like I was going crazy. I really did, because during the day, I was trying to be like, very pragmatic, okay, we're going to miscarry this and we're going to move forward. But at night, I would hold to my Bible, and I would hold to the promises that God had given me, and I would say, please God. Please God, just this one time. And if you're a woman who's ever experienced loss like that, miscarriages, you struggle with the fact that you feel defective. You struggle with the fact that you can't do the one thing a woman's created to do. And you struggle with the fact that you actually can't even talk to anyone about it, because around you, everybody else is okay. My sister was pregnant at the same time, and she was doing the going thing, and, you know, her hair looked great, she looked great, the baby was, she was healthy and everything was great, and I was happy for her, but it was really hard. And, on the, and as much as I love my mom, she didn't understand. She'd never lost any children. She'd never miscarried. So she would try, but it's not quite the same. And Craig was a bit lost and didn't quite know what to do because I refused to let him tell anyone. <laughs> I said, we can't tell anyone I'm pregnant. I'm not going through that again. I'm not going through everybody being sorry for me because I miscarried again. I said, you can't tell anyone. And the pregnancy kept progressing, and every time we went to the doctor, they were waiting for this to show up as huge deformities. And, and that's literally what they would say. they say, oh, we're expecting to see this, or we're expecting to see that. And every so often, they would stop the machine in the middle of the scan, and they would go and they would get 
the higher up person who would come in and they'll be frowning and they'll be staring and the whole time I'm thinking, okay, is this it? Is this really going to tell me, list all the problems that this child's going to have? Because that's what I was waiting for. But what would happen was he would go, okay, things are okay, and he'd walk out frowning. And as the pregnancy progressed and my faith kept growing, because it did, because at night, every night, I lingered with God. And I would say, God, please. God, please. And then I got to the point where I was like, whatever this child looks like, I'm going to love anyway. Because they kept telling me this child was going to be deformed. They kept telling me that even if the child made it all the way through, it wasn't going to be healthy and whole. And I just kept going, God, please. Whatever you, whatever you decide, God. And I kept praying scriptures of healing. I kept praying Psalm 139, because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And when the time came for the birth, in fact, it was quite funny, I was 38 weeks pregnant, and Craig says, can I tell people yet? <laughs> I said, okay. But by the time the, the birth came, it was a traumatic birth, it wasn't easy. I had 36 and a half hours of labor before I had an emergency cesarean. I didn't know what I'd had for two and a half hours because they had to completely knock me out because of the Crohn's with some other complications going on. And I didn't know what I'd had. And I, kept, I said to nurse, what did I have? And she said, I don't know. She goes, I'll go and find out. So for two and a half hours, I lay there after recovery, not knowing. And Craig comes in, and the first words he says to me is, she's gorgeous. And I can look at my daughter because she is a living miracle. Because she walks and she talks and she is of sound mind and there is nothing physically wrong and there's nothing mentally wrong. So regardless of what the doctor said, I have a miracle that I look at and I know that when he says, I will heal, he will heal. And I know when he says that he will provide, that he will provide. And I know when he says that we are here to walk in victory, that I will walk in victory because he has given me a living miracle to look at every day. So I don't know what it is you are struggling with now, but I know that whatever it is, that he is bringing Sunday to you. You may be sitting in Saturday. This may be your Saturday, but Sunday is coming. And when it dawns with the sun, the sun will come in and he will bring all that you need. He will bring to you the victory of this life. He, that's why he went through everything. It wasn't enough that he wanted you just to be saved. He wanted you to be victorious. He said that he has made you the head and not the tail. So stand up and be the head. Wherever you are, that is what he has done for you. When he says to you, I will provide for what you need, then know that that is what he means. You need to stand up and say, yes, I thank you for that, God. We need to begin living and praying in a way that actually thanks him for what we've got, that thanks him for what we're getting, that thanks him for Sunday that's coming. So Easter Sunday is about the resurrection, and it's about the triumph, and it's about the victory, and it's about us as the people of God standing up and saying, this is the God that I believe in. That it may have been Friday, I may have seen it buried and hung on a cross, but my God lives, and that resurrection power is alive in me, and that is what we need to be believing for. 
Romans 8.28, in everything God works for the good for those who love him. That's how Jesus, John felt about Jesus. He loved him. He didn't understand him, didn't always agree with him, but he loved him. And because he loved him, he stayed near. Today may be Saturday for you, but stay near. Linger with him. And everything God works for the good of those who love him. Sometimes it pays to remove the word everything and replace it with the symbol of your tragedy. In scars, God works for the good of those who love him. In hospital stays, God works for the good of those who love him. In divorce papers, God works for the good of those who love him. In prison, God works for the good of those who love him. In your tragedy, in your loss, in your hurt, in your betrayal, in whatever it is that symbolizes your loss, God works for the good of those who love him. And as hard as it may be, as hard as it may be to be living in Saturday, Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. There are other people here I know who have a testimony of God arriving on Sunday for them. And today is a day that you should gather around some of those people. If today your Friday feels too real and it feels too raw and you you don't even think you've made it to Saturday, find those people and talk to them. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We overcome the enemy by the word of our testimony. We have to be talking to one another. You have to share your testimonies. And yes, it can be hard because sometimes it's a bit embarrassing for us. Or sometimes we have to acknowledge where we went wrong and we did wrong. But that God will always turn it to triumph. So I want you to stand and we're going to pray. Father, I thank you. Words cannot express, God, what you have done for us. But I don't want today to be sorrowful or to be sad about about what Jesus went through to bring us salvation. But God, I want today to be a day when I remember the triumph when he came up out of that tomb, when he brought the the keys of, of hell and death and he gave us life. I thank you, God, that we have been brought out of the darkness and into the kingdom of light. I thank you, God, that we no longer have to walk under a death sentence, but that we walk under the power of the Most High God. I thank you, God, that we are sons and daughters of the King, that we partake in everything that you have for us. I thank you, God, that you pour out for us all your blessings and all your mercy and all your grace. And I thank you, God, that we are a people of power, that we are a people who will stand victorious, that we are made the head and not the tail, that we are built to overcome, that we are here to reign and rule and have dominion over the earth and over the things that we've set before us. And I thank you, God, that today is a day that we can celebrate that Jesus is risen and that the victory is ours. Be the Sondra Lakia, Sindra Lakaya, Sondra Bashir Dra Lakia, so.
Tira sondra da baixita da laqui a sitra da baixondra da baixita da laqui. Tira su. And he will make our path straight. And we will walk in victory, never faltering, with our eyes looking neither to the left nor to the right, but firmly fixed upon Jesus. And all the people said, Amen.